Right. Uh, the reading this morning is from the first letter uh, of John, uh, reading from verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 2. And as it says on the screen, found on page 1225 in the Church Bibles. So, 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thank you very much, Vern, for, for reading for us. Let me add my welcome to, to David's uh, from earlier. If you, if you hear last week, you know that we began this letter, um, and we looked at the first four verses. We're going to look at the, the chunk after that uh, today. Um, and you will notice that the letter begins in that opening paragraph with, with two things in view. Um, first, Jesus, uh, and secondly, the fellowship uh, that Jesus creates. And they're just fantastic themes, aren't they? What, what a great way to start a letter by, with a focus on our, our Savior Jesus and with a focus on the church, uh, the fellowship uh, that arises because of him. We, we love that stuff. But almost at once, perhaps you're thinking, John goes and ruins it. Because then he starts talking about all that sin business um, and judgment and all that kind of stuff. It becomes the dominant idea right through the next few paragraphs. And, and if, if relationships and community, if they're sort of hooray words, we like those, then sin and judgment, well, they're kind of boo words. Uh, we don't much like those. But over the years, uh, I've come to realize that the two are connected. 
But it doesn't mean that people like the notion of sin and judgment. Um, it's probably been the, the commonest reason for people um, to, to feel as if they, they can't stick with us here at Christchurch. Uh, I've had people say to me, I love the community. I love the warmth of the welcome. Uh, I, I love the relationships that I see. But, but I, I simply cannot abide your, your emphasis on sin. You're always talking about sin. It's, it's just so negative. It's so discouraging. It just sort of makes people feel bad. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's right to do that. And as carefully as I can, uh, when I find myself in that kind of conversation, I, I try to explain that the two things are not unconnected. That the warmth of the community that people so often appreciate and an emphasis on sin and judgment and the remedy that Jesus has for those, those two things go hand in hand. One comes from the other. And this passage goes a long way to to explaining why that is. Uh, By the end, I hope that will become clear. Um, the verses we're looking at are, as I suggested, sort of, they kind of loop round. They have the same idea coming up several times. It's a bit like that spiral staircase that I was mentioning last time. Um, so I've got three headings that, that don't work their way sequentially through the passage, uh, but pick up uh, what I think are three ideas that will help us make sense of the passage. Uh, first, uh, they're on the back of the sheet if, if it helps you. Um, first, ignoring sin and the problem that that creates. Second, confessing sin and the solution that God provides. Uh, And then thirdly, facing sin and the fellowship believers enjoy. First up then, ignoring sin and the problem that arises because of that. Um, John mentions three claims that that probably were being made. um, And that's why John is needing to write. They're all connected to the way that sin was being minimized or denied. Um, You see there verse 8. First claim, if we claim to be without sin. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned. And then verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. It's slightly different on each of the three occasions, but all of them are in some way or another playing down the, the, the significance or the reality of sin. Um, let, let's begin by defining terms. Um, sin is rebellion. It, it's opposition to God. So while sin includes stuff we might say, or stuff we might do, um, it, it's not finally the behaviors themselves, but it's the attitude of, of our hearts that sits behind that behavior. It's the attitude that says, my life's my life. I'll live it the way that I want to. I'll live according to my rules and nobody else's. I have that right. So it's my choices. Doing right by my gaze. What's right in my eyes. And and with that attitude, God is set to one side. Now the particular errors concerning sin here vary. The the first is the idea that sin simply doesn't matter, that sin's no big deal. 
plenty of uh, that way of thinking today. Um, it, it's a while back now, those, those of you who are uh, oldish like me. You might remember, do you, do you remember the, um, the, the cream cakes advert? Do you remember that one? So nice, it's sinful. Oh, the picture of a lovely cream cake. Um, or, or I saw one recently, uh, uh, an artisan ice cream van. Um, and strapped across the side, sinful ices. Um, sorry, that's I-C-E-S, um, in case that wasn't clear. Um, um, and, and the notion sat behind that. Um, do, do you see what that is? It, it's, it's kind of, sin is, is deliciously nice. And, and we know it's a bit naughty, but go on. You know, you know, you want to really, and it's not too bad. Um, and there's much of that way of conceptualizing sin uh, in our culture. Um, and the notion then is that those of you who take sin seriously, uh, who get all het up about sin, well, you're prudes, you're killjoys. You're just stopping people enjoying life. That's what you are. Probably when the letter was written, um, the, 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 this sort of minimization of the importance and significance of sin um, was woven in with the idea that we discussed last week. Do, do you remember um, that probably there was an idea of saying spiritual stuff, that's good. Bodily material stuff, that's bad. Um, so just be spiritual. And probably out of that kind of um, viewpoint came the idea that, well, if it's only the spiritual stuff that matters and bodily stuff doesn't really count for anything, well, then what I do with my body doesn't really matter. So I can commit lots of sins with my body and it doesn't really touch the spiritual bit of me. Probably that was part of the idea that sat in behind this. But John says it's just not like that. Um, Look at the top of the passage, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Um, John's saying two things about God here. Um, First, he's telling us that God reveals himself. By saying God is light, God reveals himself, because that's what light does. Uh, a few weeks back, we had this Christingle service. Uh, some of you are probably at it. Um, and we wait till it's dark, and then we turn off all the lights, uh, and it is pitch black. Um, and then we light uh, a single candle here at the front. Uh, um, and immediately, everyone can see it. And by it, Rachel and I up at the front here are able to read some words and start reading out some verses. I mean, light is like that into darkness, it reveals itself. And by it, we see things. And secondly, this image of light, by by saying God is light, John is is also alerting to the fact that God is pure. In him there is no darkness. Light and dark, incompatible. Where you have light, you've no longer got darkness. And John wants us to know that, that it's like that with God. In God, there is nothing bad, nothing evil, nothing wicked at all. There can't be. He's utterly, perfectly pure. 
And so the idea that a little naughtiness is okay, the idea that God is some sort of genial grandfather who turns a blind eye while the children are being naughty because it's nice for them to have a bit of fun, that that conceptualization of God is just utterly wrong. It's not the way it is. Because sin isn't fun. It's sin that ruins marriages. It's sin that abuses children. It's sin that starts wars. And it's sin that oppresses the weak. And that is why God is opposed to it. But, but there's a second error here. Not, not only the claim that um, sin doesn't matter, um, but then the claim that, that actually I haven't got any of it. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The, the first error is, is there in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, walk in the darkness, uh, then we lie. The second error is here. If we claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's ridiculous. How could anyone possibly imagine, possibly pretend or, or, or conceive of themselves as, as being without any error or sin at all? But actually, is it so hard to imagine? Just, just pause for a moment. Think, think of the way that we operate. Think of what you like. Think how hard you and I find it to admit when we've done something wrong. We just don't like to do that, do we? I don't think that's just me. I, I hate admitting that I've done something wrong. I'd rather do anything that, that, you know, than, than avoid sort of fessing up to the fact that I've made a mistake. Or, or think about two people in a, in a clash, in an argument. How come? When, when you're in a, in a tussle like that with somebody, you instantly know ten things that they've done wrong. But you can't, for the life of you, think of anything that you've done wrong. Those are just two of the ways that this sort of denial of the reality of our own sinfulness expresses itself. We pretend we're better than we are. And at times, in Christian history, that tendency has... um, developed into, into a perfectionist movement of Christians who say it is possible to be sin-free. But when we do these things, when we, when we minimize sin, say it doesn't really matter, or, or we even deny the presence of sin altogether, John says we lie. You know, there's the emphasis on, on lying and deceit. Um, again, verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And then again in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, out to be a liar. Minimizing sin, denying sin, it, it flies in the face of reality. It denies reality. There's a deception of other people, But perhaps more alarming, there's a deception of ourselves. And then finally, well, it's not a deception of God because you can't deceive God. 
but it is making God out to be a liar, saying that what he says about sin and about human nature isn't true. So, so what does God say about sin? Well, that brings us to, to a second heading. We've, we've seen that, that all sorts of problems arise out of a denial of sin because now we can't deal with it. Uh, but see, secondly, uh, the way that confessing sin allows us to find the solution that God provides. Now, at this point, okay, uh, at this point, I am going to erect a little um, conceptual red warning triangle. You, you know those red warning triangles that you put on the road, accident ahead? Well, it's not an accident ahead, but it's, but it's a sort of warning signal. Um, there is serious theology ahead. Okay, so, so just, just note that there is a red warning triangle here. Uh, steal yourselves. It's important theology. It's worth thinking about. Uh, so let's go for it, all right? In a few minutes, uh, we're going to go downstairs and we're going to baptize Ed. And it will provide for us a wonderful visual image uh, of what the Christian faith is all about. The, the, the cleansing that is possible uh, because of the blood of Jesus. The, the washing away of impurity so that our impurity is replaced by his perfection. Lovely visual image of that. But how? How is that possible? On what basis do we declare that God does that? Well, here are verses that make it clear for us. In verse 7, we read that it is the blood of Jesus, God's Son, that purifies us from all sin. But perhaps most clearly of all, uh, chapter 2 and verse 2, when John writes, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Okay, ready? Warning triangle in place. The word behind that that phrase, atoning sacrifice, is actually a single word in the original. And the, the old translation of it is a word that we don't use much anymore. I guess that's why um, it gets translated this way instead. The old word is a word called propitiation. Uh, and because it's kind of unfamiliar. But it's a really important word. That propitiation means... It, it means what happens when somebody is made propitious or favorable towards you. If somebody's against you, but you propitiate them, then you make them propitious. You make them favorable towards you instead. It's a change of orientation. And what we're being told here is that before this propitiation took place, God is angry with us because of our sin. And if you or I are ever going to be acceptable in God's presence, then his anger, his right and proper judgment upon us for our sin needs to be turned aside. That is, it must be propitiated. Now, this is the point when people get twitchy. Okay, you're feeling twitchy? It just feels a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? It feels a bit primitive. You know, the idea that, that there are angry gods out there 
Um, and if we're not careful, we'll be in trouble with them. So let's scatter a few sacrifices around to keep them happy. Just, just it feels a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? You know, we, we want a bumper harvest. So let's give a sacrifice to the God of the harvest. Uh, we want a nice baby, um, healthy and, and, and at least four kilograms. No, we don't. Sorry. Okay. Bad illustration. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry, Louise. Um, we, we want just the right size baby. Um, and so we, we uh, sacrifice to, to the God of fertility to sort that out for us. And you think, well, that's, that's kind of primitive stuff, isn't it? It can't be like that. Forever presenting sacrifices to God to make him happy. Well, it's vital that we understand things here. Is God angry with sin? Yes. Does God judge our sin? And because he is righteous, require the proper punishment for sin? Yes. Is it really the case that the necessary punishment for sin is death? Yes. So is our only hope to present to God a sacrifice for sin? No. Why not? Because the astonishing truth of the gospel is that God does it for us. He presents the sacrifice for sin. God who is angry propitiates himself. Ever wondered why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important and so unique? This is why. Because the separate persons of the Trinity make this possible. That God, as God the Son, is able to die in our place, propitiating his heavenly Father. He's not an innocent third party. No, God is taking sin upon himself, taking the judgment for sin upon himself. That's the astonishing truth at the heart of the Christian gospel. Think of it, if you will, like this. Uh, Many... Lots of you will have heard this illustration before. Think that you have done something wrong, something seriously wrong. In in a moment of of ill temper, you've committed some violent act. Uh, Or or in in some moment of madness uh, in the workplace, you've embezzled funds. And uh, your wrongdoing has led you to be charged, uh, to be taken to the criminal court, and you have been found guilty, rightly, on the evidence. Uh, And then you stand before the judge on the bench dispensing judgment. And because that judge is honest and fair, he, he will not and he cannot and he should not bend the law and pretend that what you did doesn't matter. So he dispenses the the right and proper punishment, the penalty that the law determines for your wrongdoing. But then suppose, to your astonishment, that the judge removes his legal gown, takes off his legal wig, and before you have the chance to move, uh, he is ahead of you, going before you, to to pay the colossal fine that you've got to pay, or or to step into the custodial sentence 
that has been given to you. And to your astonishment, he takes your place by paying the punishment instead of you. And do you see, justice is done. The penalty is paid. But mercy is there too, because the payment is made by another. God is perfectly just, utterly just. He must uphold his justice. But God is also wonderfully, miraculously, astonishingly gracious and is determined to find a way to demonstrate both of those two two things simultaneously. If God was only about justice, we'd be lost. We'd be condemned, rightly. If God just simply overlooked sin and pretended it didn't matter, then the very difference between right and wrong would collapse. The, the, The one who upholds justice would be compromised. Only through the cross can both these attributes come together so that we see grace in all its astonishing glory and we see justice upheld. Do do you see there's nothing primitive about this? Because it's not us propitiating God. It is God propitiating himself. That's that's what the verse is down in verse 2 of chapter 2 mean. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, and he is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. Now can I ask you, do you feel the impact of that? I mean, mean, try with me for a moment. Take yourself into the dock. Imagine the awfulness, the, the ruin of your life that it would be as a criminal record rests upon you because of that stupid thing that you did and all the ways in which the rest of your life is going to be marred and marked by now carrying the stain uh, of that folly and then imagine the astonishment to realize it's not just that the fine has been paid on your behalf but actually that the entire criminal record is expunged and you can live the rest of your life with that gone completely disappeared Well, now magnify that a hundredfold, a thousandfold. As you realize that it's not a 10,000 pound fine, but your very life that is forfeit. And it's not a judge paying a few pounds. It is Jesus Christ, God himself, taking your place and ensuring that not just the rest of your life, but the entire of eternity you live with a perfect record in the presence of the creator God. All because of Jesus. All because of his sacrificial blood that purifies us from all sin. Now finally, come back to where we began and see the impact that such a thing has. How by facing our sin, believers discover a a unique fellowship in Christ. Uh, remember fellowship, relationship, hooray words sin, judgment, boo words are you beginning to see the way that 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 doesn't work that that's not the way that it is because much to our surprise perhaps it is only this focus on sin and the remedy that God provides for it that, that will ever produce 
the unique and distinctive fellowship that Christians enjoy. See, but see what is it that tears, a, tears relationships apart so often? What, what, what is it that, that tears communities apart so often? It's rivalry, isn't it? So, someone acts all smug and superior. Somebody sort of up themselves with their excellence and they, and they start to look down on everyone else and, and other people feel a bit, bit sort of grumpy about that. Um, and gradually a community fractures. Or, or someone uh, perhaps feels so rubbish about themselves, so foolish, so much of a failure that they, don't, they can't even enter into the community. They just stay on the outside or they just drift away altogether because, because who am I to belong here? Do you see that the gospel speaks into both of those experiences? To to the person who feels worthless, not up to much, I I don't deserve to belong to this community. The gospel says, no, 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 we're all needy here. Every one of us in this community wrestles with the reality of sin in their lives. Every one of us needs a saviour. You're welcome here if you feel needy and inadequate because we're all needy and inadequate when it comes to spiritual life. And in this community, we don't measure one another according to performance. We don't rank our community in terms of the value of the gifts that people have got given and produce a strata as a result. And we welcome all equally according to the grace that is in Christ. But as well as speaking to the person who feels inferior, the the gospel also speaks to the person who is smug and superior, who's a bit full of themselves. And the gospel says, just just wise up, stop pretending. Who do you think you are? You're you're not any better than anyone else here. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ had to die that you could be forgiven? How could you possibly be so puffed up and self-important when you realize that that's the case? Of course, you're not better than anyone else. God died in Christ as the only means. Nothing else could save you. As often has been said, the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. It levels us. And that's what creates the uniqueness of a Christian community. So when people say, I like the warmth, I like the welcome here, but, but I really can't abide how much you talk about sin and judgment. Do you see that it's only this emphasis on sin and judgment that creates the leveling because we're a community of sinners saved by grace. It's only that emphasis on sin and judgment and salvation that produces the warmth, that produces the welcome, that produces the lack of hierarchy. So how do we keep it? How do we manage to hang on uh, to that emphasis? Um, let me just say two quick things as we finish. First, be serious about sin, but never shocked by its presence. That would be my first bit of advice to us all. Um, it's important that we never imagine that this free gift of the gospel somehow means that we can be casual about sin. Uh, I think that's why John begins um, chapter 2 as he does. 
my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. He's not saying, look, because there's a sacrifice for sin, ah, it doesn't matter, you know, relax. Sin as much as you like, because God will sort it out. No, he says, no, that's not the point. I write this so that you won't sin. Don't be casual about sin, but we mustn't be shocked by its presence either. We need to make it easy for one another to admit their struggles and to live a godly life. Because if, if we don't make it easy, then all we'll do is drive it underground. If the fellowship we create is one where everyone needs to pretend to be perfect and to pretend to have no battles with sinful desires and sinful attitudes, then instead of honest struggle, we'll have dishonest pretense. And one of the key ways to create that is to be ready to admit our own struggles with sin. That's what makes it easy for somebody to admit theirs. Uh, and, then, and then my second thought here um, is that where we find, in, and this is more of a sort of, what do we do with ourselves? Where we find that we are becoming a little bit too full of ourselves, too arrogant, that then we need to call ourselves back to remember that we're sinful. Or on the other hand, when we're feeling a bit despondent and a bit negative and a bit hopeless, we need to remember grace. We, we need to keep doing both of those things to ourselves. Remembering that because God is holy, uh, we are called to a righteous life. But when we fail to live that righteous life, he's gracious. But we mean not to pretend uh, that we live perfect lives. And we need to admit our failings. That those are really good principles um, for all of us. Um, I was saying earlier on to, to Dan, Daniel and Daniel that they're good principles. Tell Ed that they're good principles. But tell all of us that they're good principles. When we feel puffed up, remember our sin. When we feel despondent, remember God's grace. And they are the principles that will create a unique community of Christian believers together. Let me pray. Um, and then appropriately, we're going to uh, come to confess sin to God. Uh, let me pray as we finish. Uh, thank you, Father, for verses like this that... Um, press us to, to the very heart uh, of what it is that you have done for us in Christ. Uh, we, we praise you that you are a, a holy, righteous, a just God. Uh, that there is no darkness in you. But we praise you that you are also um, a merciful and gracious God. And we we're astonished afresh uh, that you have found this way, that you've made available this way of being put right with you, uh, even though it cost uh, the death of Christ himself. Uh, please would you, you help such, a, such an understanding, such a, uh, a meditation upon um, such a, a personal realization of the truth of these things uh, that it would create uh, amongst us uh, a unique community uh, of mutual love and we pray it in Christ's name Amen